The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. Tuck going, officially. The Aggies are forced to turn to their backup quarterback, and it turns out it's not just coaches who have rabbit ears. This is the College Game Day podcast for Wednesday, September 27th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here. Pete, the lead story, one that you were first on, I believe, once again, as always. Michigan State fires Mel Tucker. There's no surprise there. Their reasoning brought ridicule to the university. Brenda Tracy, a well-known speaker on sexual assault awareness, had filed a complaint against Tucker. Mel Tucker claims the two are in a mutual relationship. He's owed $75 million, and if you want to cut through most of this, it seems obvious Michigan State doesn't want him to coach, and they don't want to pay him, and Tucker's maneuvers sort of show it that show us that this is probably not over. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say one of the things, uh, having covered a lot of uh, firings in uh, in 20 years of doing this, Reese, is that this one, I would say, has particularly contentious language from, uh, from, from both sides. Um, I thought that was something that struck me about what Tucker released earlier this week. And then the school just didn't particularly hold back in... Uh, in, in when they released uh, they released their version of the events here. Um, and so I, I really feel like both sides are bracing for the uh, inevitable and inherent legal battle that's uh, that's going to come at 79 million that's uh, still on the docket. Remember Mel went uh, 11 and two in 2021, won the Peach Bowl. Amid that time, there were some high profile openings, including LSU that Mel's name was linked to. He was given a 10 year $95 million contract back in 2021. Michigan State went five and seven last year. Some of the wisdom of that contract was questioned. Um, you know, this uh, investigation was launched, I want to say, December of 2022. And uh, obviously in September, the the details of the investigation came out via a very detailed USA Today report. So um, that was kind of the beginning of the end in terms of the unpaid suspension, which led to the notice of intent to fire which then today was culminated with the uh with the actual uh with the actual firing. So it's uh it's I think noteworthy that the uh the, the language used was this. Um Tucker's quote behaviors which have brought public disrespect, contempt and ridicule upon the university and constitute a material breach of his agreement and moral turpitude. That is uh a far cry from the uh wish the you know part ways and wish best of luck um which is uh, which is a lot of the ways when these things are not headed to court they are termed from your investigation of this and your knowledge of all of these firings one of the things that mel tucker has asserted is that this would give the university undue um purview over the personal affairs of not only its coaches but any employee do you read any of Michigan State's language to be such that it moves away from that and more into the morals clause that virtually all of us that have any type of forward-facing job are subject to to some degree that if we bring our employer into ill repute through our actions, even if it's a personal situation that becomes public, that we could find ourselves in breach of contract? Do you do you sense that some of this is Michigan State moving in that direction as opposed to um, finding something wrong within the the um, sexual uh, harassment type claim that Brenda Tracy filed? 
So I would I would say this when you look at the parse the language on 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 both sides um, from Michigan's from, I'm sorry from Tucker's side his lawyers in the 25 page document released earlier this week Reese, are basically trying to say he had a private relationship personal relationship that transcended his job and they want to claim that Michigan State should not have purview over something that happens in his private life and that that way they they've sort of used some big language of you know this decision would reverberate through the thousands of employees at michigan state whereas the school has taken that and basically said and i'm paraphrasing here you've admitted to the behaviors that we think embarrass the university and Mm -hmm. got you fired that would be the uh you know there's obviously a uh, encounter of phone sex here that has been written about quite extensively that brenda tracy claims was non-consensual. Mel Tucker claims was consensual. Um, so basically the school is saying you have admitted to specific behaviors that have embarrassed the university and embarrassed you. And that what you know, that falls under the purview of the uh, moral turpitude clause. The university's language refers to Brenda Tracy as a vendor in this case to basically draw a line of delineation that this, you know, if, if Tucker's claim this is a personal relationship, it's with someone for whom the university had a business relationship with. So, um, you know, you could go pretty deep in the mud in the 25 page document. And I'm not picking sides here. It's just you can go in the nitty gritty back and mm-hmm. forth um, of the of the legal thing. And the, the most recent document released by Tucker literally goes point by point on the 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 different uh, reasons the university claimed for cause. So I am certainly not a lawyer. I certainly don't try to play one on a podcast, but it does appear like this thing is going to be headed for more uh, legal per- review. There are a lot of explosive details, which most of our audience very familiar with, including that 36-minute um, phone call between Mel Tucker and Brenda Tracy. And as we've said on here before, and I think I said it on College Game Day too, if nothing else, public, private, whatever, Mel Tucker is guilty of egregiously mind-numbing, uh, boneheaded behavior. If you know, if nothing else, and it's, I think Michigan State particularly, not equating this while none of it is is good, and I hesitate to put degrees on it, but when they have had the entire uh, Larry Nasser thing surrounding the university, they've also had some highly publicized other incidents in various places in their athletic department. No place can afford embarrassing behavior by their most notable employees. No business can, certainly no football program or any university can. But particularly if you have had a recent history of things, this cannot be there. And so, you know, I understand why when you owed $79 million per the terms of your contract, that you're not just going to walk away meekly and quietly. I understand that. But given their situation, I mean, Michigan State's in no position to have this type of thing surrounding their university or their program right now. So it was a simple enough move. Uh, I think the people who say it is solely because Mel Tucker had the one good year, you know, losing year, the COVID year, losing year last year. I don't think it's just football. They might well have decided this was a, um, a jump the gun 
and overreaction to uh, potential suitors uh, you, that you mentioned LSU. But I don't think it's a, at least to me, maybe I shouldn't be saying this because maybe I'm casting judgment in a legal standpoint, but it doesn't strike me in my judgment of this as like, whew, finally we got something on Mel Tucker so we can get rid of him and not have to pay him. I, I, it doesn't strike me that way. Yeah, you know, I, I think Reese, when you uh, when you think about this Mel Tucker situation and in uh, in going forward, a lot of the arguments that I see from his lawyers are of process, right? Mm-hmm. Like not of facts. Does that make sense? Like yes, they're saying He's sort of stipulating to the facts, but correct. But the, they're yeah. yes, but they're saying that um, the investigation was handled poorly. They're saying that the. Uh, that the timeline doesn't add up of who knew what when they're sort of digging digging in on process um, for their claims. But to to speak to what you mentioned earlier about the Nasser situation, which obviously is is one of the most horrific situations that we've ever seen mm-hmm. on a college campus. Period. Um, it will be an interesting test of the institution of Michigan State. Do you take this to court to prove you're right and potentially embarrass a lot of your uh, officials, uh, school officials, or do you just pay Mel Tucker some money to make it go away? Because the you know the the tenor seems to indicate that that's you know perhaps something Tucker and his people are ang- angling for is uh, you know if this was at a different school you could see okay you know what we'll, we'll give him we'll avoid all this messy lawsuit mm-hmm. stuff. Discovery was particularly mentioned by Tucker uh, in one of his statements, and we'll just so- we'll just solve this and not have this hanging over our heads for years and that's that to me is an interesting administrative decision that Michigan State's decision makers and I think that will go would go well above athletic director Alan Haller I think that's a, it's an interesting moment uh for them if I were a gambling man I would bet that ultimately that's how it turns out on the field now given this type of thing going on how attractive do you think the Michigan State job is? So I think as a job, Reese, it projects as the best job to open in the upcoming cycle. Um, there do not pretend to be any SEC jobs that open. That there, there do not project to be any better Big Ten jobs that open. Michigan State's clearly a better job than Northwestern. Uh, I mean, Mark D'Antoni came to the playoff in, in 2016. Uh, Indiana could open. It would be expensive. It would be in the neighborhood of $20 million. Michigan State's clearly a better job than Indiana. With with no SEC jobs really in any significant peril, um, other than the $77 million uh, they'd be on the hook for in College Station, Um I could I could see Michigan State, you know, per se, out kicking its coverage. Remember, the world changed exponentially since they hired Mel Tucker. And getting to the Big Ten and SEC, the so-called power two, is in the back of the mind of a lot of coaches in the ACC, in the, you know, Pac-12, Big 12, um, or what's left of the Pac-12, just because of the way the the, the world has uh the world has changed and the plate tectonics have shifted so much. I would say we could do a whole podcast on this, um, that in an 18-team Big Ten, Michigan State is somewhere between job 9 and 11, right? I think the four West Coast jobs, maybe three of the four West Coast jobs are better. You've obviously then got Michigan. You've got Penn State. You've got Ohio State that are are better. You could argue maybe Wisconsin. You could argue Nebraska might have better bones, even though the results have been there recently. But it it, it would be somewhere in the muddled middle. I think it'd be a stretch to say it's like a top job in the league, but it's nowhere near the bottom of that league mm-hmm. either. Northwestern is near the bottom of that league. Indiana, mm-hmm. 
is near the bottom of that league. So do you trade in a decent, you know, this is the the question. I wrote a little bit about this, about the carousel earlier this season um, through the prism of conference realignment. Do you trade in a solid big 12 job in the new world order or a solid ACC job in the new world order for maybe a, a, a one in, in the, in the big 10, that's a little bit less if, if, if only to uh, if only to get on the right side of the financial moat, I think it's an interesting philosophical question. I know that coaches, their agents, athletic directors are all thinking about that very topic right now. And here's one thing about the job, Pete, that, and I totally agree with your assessment of where it ranks, but the one thing that makes it better than maybe it was just a few years ago is the expanded playoff. Because Michigan State in 2015 won the Big Ten, went to the playoff. They sort of, they, they caught everything just right. They upset Ohio State. Under the old format, you had to win the Big Ten, and you had to win what might be the toughest division in college football. If it's not the toughest, it's right in the argument every year. Now you don't have to. Now you can, you know, you can have a good team, maybe finish third in the in the division, probably not fourth, but you can finish well, there won't be divisions, but you can finish third or fourth in the conference, and you've got a really good shot at making a 12-team playoff. That wasn't the case before. And I think in some ways, that's going to make some of the other jobs in the Big Ten and the SEC more attractive and potentially even make them uh, destination jobs as opposed to, okay, you know, I'm going to take this, I'm going to win. And when I hit Michigan State just right, then I'm going to use that and go to LSU or, you know, go to Georgia or Alabama or Florida, whoever opens or to Ohio State. You know, if there's a connection in that job everywhere to open at some point, things like that, you won't have to do that anymore. And it might give a school like Michigan State, which will have money, has some history, has some commitment. You don't have to win the league in order to go to the playoff and you'll get a shot at it from there. I think it can make it more attractive in some ways. I think that's a that's a that's a good analysis. Reese. I will say. If you're at Michigan State and you're crushing it and you're not dyed in the wool like Mark D'Antonio was, you would still leave for a top 10 job. Oh, so if, right. if you do go there, but you wouldn't have final to. destination. Now, you can get to the biggest destination in the playoff, but I don't think you can sit there and say this is this is the the culmination of my career unless you have some you know strong tie to that school. Yeah. And some guys, those top jobs. All right, look. We saw it, and I've sort of made fun of, and and deservedly so, you know, Ryan Day's reaction after the Notre Dame game last week. Well, some of that is a reflection of the pressure that goes along with being the head coach at Ohio State. Uh, say, I just got off the uh, off of Zoom calls for a couple of hours with Notre Dame coaches. It was one loss. I mean, contrast that to what Sam Hartman experienced at Wake Forest. For all of the success that Wake Forest had. There is not the, you know, this is the end of the world as we know it when you drop a hard-fought game, even if, you know, things sort of went against you at the end. At Notre Dame, it is. At Alabama, it is. At Georgia, it is. At USC, it is. And some guys crave that, and other guys are happy to be at Michigan State or to be someplace like that, get paid the same or similarly, and have a chance to bump them off. And when you bump them off, it's euphoric. And when you don't, people say, well, we gave them a run. And, you know, it sort of depends on the it depends on the makeup of the of the coaches in question, I think.
Yeah, it's the eight and four thing. Is eight and four enough to fire you? Is eight and four enough for a contract? And that's the difference between yeah. Ohio State and Michigan State, right? You right. go eight and four at Ohio State, you're uh, you know, you're handing out your resume at the uh, at the at the combine. You go eight and four at Michigan State, they're you know, they're they're pretty happy. I, I'd imagine the median of what D'Antonio did there in his good years was about that, right? Maybe some, there were some great years, but that was you know, he essentially got that to be the expectation and the threshold. That wasn't like the down. Those weren't down years. Right. Those were good yeah. years. And if you slip you to point, five and seven there, they don't try to run you out the door either. You, yeah, you're allowed you a little bit more leeway for a for a drip for a drop. Yeah, tried it, but by the same token, because of the ability to recruit and some of the things, you're not as likely to slip back to yeah. five and seven in some years when you're maybe not as experienced or have a hole here or there in the lineup. You pointed out in your in your piece at the end that in the two games that since Mel Tucker has been relieved of his duties had gotten blown out twice uh, one time by Washington who might be the best team in the country so you can kind of you know put a little asterisk by that one I guess who would you who would you turn to first if you were sitting on the search committee for Michigan State and you were putting together three four guys where would you go first it's a good question uh you know maybe we have some some recency bias or future bias because we're going to Duke right but I think Mike Elko would be an early phone call there. I think PJ Fleck is a very worthwhile phone call there. I think Pat Narduzzi will get a long look. They went away from the tree. He was a giant part of those glory mm-hmm. years at Michigan State. And people would could look at some recent, recent, recent results at Pitt and be a little bit poo-poo on Narduzzi. He's been really good. He won the ACC. And he's part of the DNA and knows what it takes to win there, which I think is critically important. Um, yeah. I think the name Bill O'Brien would be really interesting there. Um, mm-hmm. If he wants to go back to college, he obviously had a big 10 job and did really well with it at, uh, at Penn state. Do you look at, uh, do you look at Jake Dickert or Jonathan Smith, two guys that have that kind of surged in the spotlight um, with great teams and unfortunate circumstances at Washington state and at Oregon state They're uh, they're really, really strong, uh, really, really strong candidates there. So um, Jason Candle at Toledo, uh, they're having a fine season. And, uh, you know, he'd be the kind of the hot Mac guy who would uh, who could who could emerge in that and has been in that Midwest footprint for a long time. You know, Toledo's right on that Michigan border. So you, your, your recruiting footprint is overlapped there. So, yeah, that, that's a good field, Reese. There's good coaches in that field um, with the amount of money. And it's the the son's owner. uh if Woj was here, he'd, he'd probably tiss, kiss me for the pronunciation, but it's Matt Ibisha. It's Ibisha. No, I- Ishbia. Matt Ishbia. Ishbia. Walk Thank on, you. Matt on Ishbia. The, uh, on the 2000 national championship team. Yes. Uh, Matt Ishbia, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. he could pay a buyout of a, of a established coach, right? If you, if you were helping pony up 95 million for Mel Tucker, you could help pay for, uh, you know, for a guy like PJ Fleck, a, a $20 million, I'm sorry, $10 million buyout. I think it's that neighborhood. Uh, Campbell would obviously have a buyout. I know he's gotten cold at Iowa State, but he didn't become he didn't become dumb overnight. Um, you right. know, there's you know, he, and he was also at Toledo. Um, he's a good coach. So yeah, there's some you know, there's some real guys. Uh, you know, Bronco Mendenhall is a builder, and you need a builder mm-hmm. there. You need a program developer there. You're not out recruiting Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State. Uh, D'Antonio did it with three stars who played like five stars at the end and developed. And you know, evaluation is a bigger part of that job of under recruited prospects than, than, than others. Uh, it is not a Cadillac job, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's beyond a midsize if we're in the rental car business, right? Like right. it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a solid SUV. Uh, it's like a Jeep Cherokee job, not a Cadillac yeah. job. You know, 
I th- I like the entire list, and I'm a big fan of of PJ Fleck. I'm not sure that that constitutes a big enough upward mobility for him from Minnesota, but maybe it does. That would be for him to decide. I would go either Narduzzi or Campbell first, and here's why. One, you need somebody at Michigan State that you mentioned knowing the bones. You also need someone who has an edge, someone who is not going to um, you know, be pushed around figuratively anyway by Michigan and by Ohio State, but Michigan particularly. And you, we know that Pat's got an edge to him. That's good. And the other one is uh, is Matt Campbell, because I agree with you. Just viewing the coaching carousel over the past, past few years, Matt had a couple things didn't go his way, maybe passed on an opportunity here or there that he could have taken. He kind of missed his window. And I'm a thousand percent in agreement with you. That doesn't mean he is somehow forgotten how to do it or everybody's caught up with him or something or a reset um, might be might be good for him and I think Michigan State would certainly have a very high quality coach if that's the direction they choose but all of those guys you mentioned uh tremendous upside with with any of those guys so that's the future for Michigan State the immediate present game is a trip to Iowa City, which probably does not bode well for a team that scored 16 points or whatever it is in their last two games. So joining us now is Bill Connolly, and we're, we've got some more news to talk about here too, Bill. I'd like to know, um, Texas A&M. Texas A&M has Arkansas this week. Just got news earlier today that Connor Wegman, the injury to his foot that he suffered against Auburn is more serious than first thought. And instead, he's likely done for the season. Max Johnson's going to take over his quarterback there. How much of a difference? Is there enough of a sample size, enough data yet with Bob Petrino running the offense of what kind of impact you would expect on the Aggies uh, without their starting quarterback? Yeah, all we know right now is that Max Johnson looked Max Johnson looked good last week. Um, you know, basically, if we're you know whatever measure we want to use, um, you know, four touchdown passes on the year, ninety point two in the Q, total QBR department, which Wegman was at eighty eight, so uh, pretty much identical this year. Last year, Wegman was by far the better option. Uh, there's really no question about that. Obviously, maybe he had a benefit coming in later in the year or whatever, but Johnson struggled quite a bit. Um, in 2022, you know, we'll see. Like we, we all, Bobby Petrino's good at, at coaching quarterbacks, and and maybe he's made a difference here for for Johnson this year. Maybe they don't drop off that much. I, I would say maybe it cost them what a point or two on average, uh, but nothing. No, no, they're they're worst quarterbacks in the world. Yeah, Max Johnson. It's interesting. Reese is uh, he started 12 games in the SEC. So yeah. the stakes aren't going to be, you know, phase him very much. He was six and six in those mm-hmm. games. He has 4,627 uh, career passing yards in the SEC, which I would imagine is more than all the other SEC backups combined, although I don't know that. But it would have to be close, right? Like, I can't imagine uh, there, there may be one guy tucked away who'd start a bunch of games that I'm not that I'm not thinking of. But for the uh, for the most part, for SEC starts in production, uh, it's about as ideal of a situation. I know Garrett Nussmeyer is an excellent backup with a high ceiling, but he doesn't have the uh, he just doesn't have the bottom line production that Max Johnson has had. So, yeah, I mean, and I, I, go ahead, Bill. 
Oh no! I was, I, I was like, he's just been—he's—he's he's kind of the veteran NFL backup uh, yeah. of the college level. Like where you know, I'm looking through his his game to game production, and he's had some absolutely abysmal showings through the years, and he's had a bunch at you know 70, 80, 90 in the total QBR department. So, uh, yeah, he's—you're not going to win a national title with him by any means, but yeah, he's got—he's—he's he's been around the block. You know, there there are some people I know who have been very high on Max Johnson and felt like that he was sort of caught in a difficult situation when he was at LSU. And, and then even last year with sort of the dysfunction that surrounded Texas A&M's offense, that this might be his opportunity to shine. And as, as for those backups, Pete, the only guy I can think of, and it's not yardage in sec games, but Spencer Sanders, you know, at at Ole Miss right, would be a, a backup yes. who's sitting there with a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of experience, and you know those are those are hard to find. It's mm. hard to find a guy like you know, regardless of whether you think you know Max Johnson is a functional guy or if he's a guy who maybe given the right opportunity with Petrino on the offense might really shine. As a couple of people that I know and respect do think that he can. It's nice to have somebody on there who's done it before when you lose a quarterback, especially when you're in the situation that A&M is. And this is this is sort of a desperation game this weekend for both of those teams, yep. I think, for both uh, Texas A&M and Arkansas, because Arkansas has lost a couple of heartbreakers in the last two games, and Texas A&M's lost a big one. And you know, kind of needs to, uh, they need to be able to overcome this and, and win the game against the Razorbacks on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, it is unfortunate, obviously, but this is a humongous situation right now because, I mean, Alabama, as a reminder, they, they maybe they, they clicked last week, but we've only seen it for a half. And you know, I was looking at my SP plus, uh, odds here in division title odds right now. It's 38% for Alabama, 28% for AM, 21% for LSU and LSU and AM both have, really weird games this week. Uh, Ole Miss is in a weird spot, obviously. In theory, on paper, A&M looks like they should handle uh, Arkansas, but that nobody ever handles anybody easily in that game in Arlington. Uh, it's always weird and close. And so um, big opportunities for both teams this year, but they got to survive this week. You know, there's interesting, and I hope it doesn't come to play, and I don't think it will come into play, but Sam Pittman has a really unusual clause in his contract, one I've never seen before. Um, If Arkansas is above 500, his buyout is distinctly different than if Arkansas is below 500. And Sam Pittman, as we sit here today in his time at Arkansas, and I'm being dramatic um, because... Is right now 21 and 19. <laughs> so obviously, again, I don't Simpim has done a great job. I don't think he should be fired. But if they do go sideways and they end up one game below 500, the university is almost incentivized in some ways, as opposed to if he is above 500 to fire him. The the difference is uh about five million dollars. Uh, in in what the uh, in what the buyout would be, the numbers I have for my notes this summer are from fourteen point five to nine point seven. 
I, I've seen a lot of coaches' contracts and written about a lot of coaches' contracts. I don't remember anyone quite like that. And of course, it's fitting that he's sitting right there at the Mendoza line, tiptoeing around it as uh, as the season goes on. So hopefully for Sam's sake, they get a win in Jerry World. He's three games above, breathing good air, drinking his, uh, drinking his what was it he drank last year, Reese? Uh, would he bring iced tea or liquor? So I think he'd be drinking liquor. Just a fun nugget. Uh, just a, you, you never know what you're going to come up with next in college sports. So uh, I wish I wish I could remember that quote right off the top of my head, but I know he always says, you know, I'm going to open one of them old cold beers, you know, after they win when they turn on the jukebox. So, um, and and they've come close. I mean, I watched uh, obviously last week, but watched a good portion of the BYU game, and BYU made plays, but you kept feeling as if Arkansas were the better team. So they yeah. and they miss an opportunity against LSU on Saturday night. And uh, you know, those are the ones, those are the ones that will that will frustrate you as a coach. But I think Arkansas, to your point, Pete, and I and I know you weren't suggesting that this is in the works or anything like that. They need to be they need to be careful and realize, and I think they do actually with their leadership, realize the stability that he's brought to that program, the the good energy that he's brought there. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen whether the whether the change in offense has really taken hold and is really working for them uh, at a high level. What do they look like in terms of their success rate and, and functionality on offense right now, Bill? Rocket Sanders has been out and may yeah. not be back for a while. And that that's yeah. I mean, he he may be the best tailback in the SEC. He's certainly in the in the conversation for best tailbacks in the SEC. I believe a walk on at Missouri leads the SEC in rushing. Hey, so so D2 product Cody Schrader some respect there, but yeah. He, Sorry, all respect to D, what what school did he come from, Bill? Uh Northwest Missouri State. He's a he's Northwest a Missouri boy. State. All respect to the Northwest Missouri State Spotted Owls. Um <laughs> I don't know their nickname. But yeah, good. No, it's good for him. But Rocket Sanders was a real guy when you you, you were coming into this season. I mean, he was a you know high level draft guy, high level NIL guy. He's you know he's the best of that league. Yeah, acknowledging that Sanders is out, obviously you have to take that into account. They are just kind of okay on offense. The 39th in points per drive, the 38th in my success rate measure. Not a lot of big plays, uh, which is obviously something Sanders can help with. Uh, but I do. They're just kind of in a weird spot in general. Um, they've kind of hit this little predictable rut where they run on first down and they throw on third down and and Jefferson's not really going anywhere when he runs. And it's just not – I didn't love the Dan Enos hire and I felt like maybe I was being unfair because they moved the ball at Maryland last year. It's just the things they were good at at Maryland last year didn't really translate to having K.J. Jefferson as your quarterback um, without quite as much running or anything like that. So I don't know. Like it's, it's certainly been the offensive line isn't very good uh, and and their best running back is out. So th- those are certainly uh, hazards at the moment, but they've been pretty disappointing so far. You know, in terms of not one of your fancy metrics, Bill, <laughs> but just pure yards per game, how far do you move the ball? Worst offense in the SEC mm. is Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> and even in yards per play, if you want to say, okay, well, they're, they're trying to run the ball more. They're second worst to Auburn. Uh, those, those are the two worst in Arkansas ranks just ahead of both of them um, in, in the conference standings there. It sort of puts the middle of the pack nationally. Best in Game is brought to you by Old Dominion Freightline, helping the world keep promises. What games are what games are you most fascinated by? I've heard some people say that the schedule's not great this week. I don't really agree with that. There are there are four games matching ranked opponents. In addition to that, 
this is this is college football and one, two, six, seven, eight, all on the road. I'd have to look to make sure, but I think there's only one team maybe in the top 12 that's playing, that's playing at home. So, I mean, there are danger spots all over the place. I think Texas is the only team maybe in the top 12 that um, that is playing at home this week. There are some that aren't playing. Which ones, where, where do you see the snake pits? Where do you see the empty elevator shafts where people might fall in? Yeah, it's, I think that's what's most interesting about this week. I mean, after last week with all these humongous matchups, it was going to feel like a letdown. But you do, and and even with the four ranked versus ranked, I think it's only one in the top nine that are involved in those. So it's like you know double digits versus double digits, and that, that feels like a letdown. This is going to be a super informational week, though. Um, I mean, number one, you know, using the trick I used a couple of weeks ago, where you know one of these teams is going to lose. I mean, just the top two teams, Georgia on the road and Michigan on the road, both for the first time. You know, with with SP plus, you know, there's only a there's a 28 percent chance that one of them loses, um, which is not nothing. It's you know that could be pretty chaotic in general, even if they're probably going to both handle their business. But we've got a couple of ACC upstarts um, who have Clemson and do or excuse me, Syracuse and Duke have both very much looked. If you ignore all preseason, all previous seasons or anything, and just looked at the last four weeks, they've looked like top 15 teams. And we don't know if they can continue that. And that's kind of the hard part, but they both get a chances, you know, Syracuse gets a very frustrated Clemson at home and Duke gets a very frustrated North uh, Notre Dame at home and really wouldn't surprise me if at least one of those two won. Um, neither game is, is the spreads within a touchdown in both. Um, you know, Utah has to figure out how to win with defense one more week before maybe Cam Rising, A, comes back and then B starts looking like Cam rising down the stretch. Um, SEC West is your know, three inter or intra division matchups there that that'll tell us a lot. So there's a lot going on. It's just, um, yeah, we don't have that Notre Dame, Ohio State's uh, screaming headliner uh, leading it off. I'm, I think the best game on paper, and this is all due respect to the game day game, Reese, the game you're calling out this week. Uh, I think Utah Oregon State's the best game, right? Like that game, I feel like, you know, could go, you know, it, it seems destined to go down to the last play. You've got two great offensive lines, defensive lines. Um, you know, there's still a little ambiguity around Cam rising and uh, in, in his return. Does he come back in the middle of that snake pit re redone Reeser on a Friday night? I don't know. Uh, I think that's going to be up to uh, Dr. Elatrosh, um, whether, whether or not he's cleared for that. But if he does, what a scene that would be, uh, you know, late night on uh, late night on Friday. If he doesn't, you got uh, Scooty, little Nate Johnson, running around there trying to uh, trying to grind out some first downs, and he's obviously been really impressive. And, and look, like Utah is four zero. Kyle Whittingham is a darn good football coach. He said in his forty years of coaching, this is the most injuries he's ever endured on a coaching staff. So they have overcome a ton. Uh, we don't know if we'll see Brant Keefe this year, the tight end. Um, you know, he's been dealing with uh, he's been dealing with a serious injury, and you know, there's just a lot of. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of adversity that Utah's faced. So I'm excited about that. I think we forget sometimes because um, we get focused on brands that Utah is the back-to-back -back Pac-12 champions. They are uh, they are a uh, they are a salty unit, sort of built to go grind out a road game like this. And Oregon State's now reeling from a road loss of its own, and uh, it'd be fun to see what uh, what DJ Uyungle has. It'll be fun to see if Aiden Childs gets a long little longer look. He's the really talented backup at Oregon State. Uh, a young player who's it's been hard to uh you know it's been hard for that staff to sort of keep him on the bench because of the potential he shows. So 
A uh, lot of good games, a lot of elevator shafts, as, uh, as Reese likes to say. Am I crazy to think Nebraska, this thing could be a game like it was for <laughs> Michigan at Illinois, mid-third quarter? Like, I feel like on defense, they're designed to to maybe slow them down a bit. It's, yeah, uh, it's I agree. Crazy. I think there's a good, I think there's a good chance of, the, good chance of that. I don't know if they can score, uh, you know, at all, but I think there's a good chance that they ugly that thing up. Yeah, Nebraska, or excuse me, Michigan has the best defense in the country, and Nebraska's offense, we know, is not Correct. one of yes. the best I, <laughs> just yet. Yeah. But, I don't think it'll be a shootout, no. but... Um, I do love know. that they they put Harburg at quarterback, and all he's just, you know, that hair is flopping, and he's just charging into a defender every chance he gets. He's not going to last another four games, but it's 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 been fun uh, watching him uh, just... Uh, booking it out there so um that's been interesting and, and the other defense is still pretty good michigan will at least have to shift into like third gear they've they've kind of mastered the art of you know putting games away and then letting the other team come back and cover in the fourth quarter and and you know it's i guess frustrating if you're betting but they might have to actually play all four quarters today or on saturday and it'll be interesting at least to see if i, I assume they'll handle that fine but it's still something they haven't had to do yet I've been impressed by Nebraska's front. I just think there's that's been one thing that's been really consistent about them so far uh, so far this year. So they could certainly uh, they could certainly get after uh, get after JJ McCarthy a little bit. They could sell out for the run. And uh, again, their offense has not been great. And uh, Harburg's been fun to watch. Um, but yeah, that offense needs to evolve a bit before they can be competitive in the Big Ten. But at least perhaps it'll be an interesting test of their grit to see if they can uh, they can drag Michigan in the mud with them for a bit. I, I do think um, one interesting stat you're talking about uh, Nebraska's front um, opponents definitely know that their their uh, their front is very good, and obviously they've played a couple of pretty pass happy teams. They've also played Minnesota and NIU, uh, but. I, I break things into standard downs and passing downs. That's kind of one of my main little go-tos for standard down is, you know, first down, second, and I think seven or less, third and fourth, just downs where you can run or pass. Um, and in both standard downs and passing downs, uh, opponents are throwing more on Nebraska than anybody else in the country or, or second most. Um, they're, they're 132nd in run rate in those categories. So people are avoiding the run against Nebraska and, Michigan's not going to do that. Michigan's not going to ever avoid the run. And I'm, uh, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, there, there are some unknowns here, some interesting little quirks that could be interesting to watch. And USC sort of starts the season. I guess we can welcome the Trojans after their the preseason portion of their schedule. Um, although they messed around with uh, Scadabo and Arizona State for a long time um, on Saturday night. But the one thing that I noticed in looking at the SC Colorado game is that I think that we're probably going to get a whole lot more of what we saw in Eugene. Now, Colorado's going to want to answer the bell, but the one thing USC's defense has done is they've gotten to the quarterback pretty well. And that's that's bad news if you're Colorado because everybody's gotten to Colorado's quarterback and still Shadur Sanders has played extraordinarily well given the type of heat he's been under. But they're going to have to be able to keep up because you know SC is going to score a ton against Colorado's defense. So I suspect that when it's finished, that game's going to play out about the way it did in Eugene on Saturday. Bill, would you concur with that? 
I think the odds are decent. I will say, I mean, I, you know, USC last week, we did see, if nothing else, just a little sloppiness, a little, you know, attention to detail. The focus wasn't always there. It was a seven-point game in the second half, all that. So, I mean, maybe if they're not focused, then, um, or if they have those lapses, then maybe something similar could happen this week. Because, I mean, Colorado's better than Arizona State. So, um, you can certainly talk yourself into that. But, yeah, I think I, I doubt we're going to see too many teams that are unfocused against Colorado with everything that is. Um... <laughs> Do you have a metric to measure focus, Bill? That's right. Um, yeah, the the run it up metric, I'm pretty sure, is what you might call it. But um, and I mean, some of that's not even Colorado's fault. It's just, you know, the, that they were the story of the season. Um, and this is what happens uh, uh you know when you get up on one of those stories you're gonna you're gonna keep swinging for a while so yeah i i think oregon might be a little better than usc at this point and i do think that there's at least a slight chance that they they lapse in focus or whatever but i'm still i'm still taking the trojans pretty easily i'm thinking i just feel like if san jose scored 28 in a yeah. <laughs> brutally beat up no offensive line i mean arizona state had four O-linemen out in a game-type decision on a fifth. They didn't have enough uh, O-linemen to practice fully. They had nine healthy scholarship guys uh, the week leading into that game. So if if that program as a walking wounded managed to cobble together 28 points, I, I do think that Shador and, you know, Horn and Weaver can, can connect a few times, gash them here and there. I don't think the final score will be competitive, but I would be surprised if Colorado just gets stoned like they did in Eugene because they just got stoned in Eugene. Uh, there's no other, there's no way to uh, say it. And uh, the the defenses that Alex Grinch has had to compliment Lincoln Riley have had more of an aggressive, um, you know, like let's, let's try to force a turnover. Let's try to blitz and get them off the field. Not let's like, let them take a six-yard bubble and march down the field. Like that's just not the way the the defensives the defenses run for uh, for USC. So I would expect a little bit of spirited back and forth before the roster realities uh, come into play. Oh, and the something you said sort of strikes a chord based on our experience college game day in Eugene last year and the aroma wafting through the air. <laughs> Colorado wasn't the first to get stoned in, uh, in, in Eugene, but I, I digress. We've talked about maybe the best game of the weekend is Utah, Oregon state, SC, Colorado, uh, Washington. We've said maybe he's the best team in the country. And we spent most of the podcast on Monday, Pete, talking about hypersensitive rabbit-eared coaches, and we're going to talk about that a little bit too. But it turns out, I guess, you can have rabbit ears for an entire conference, especially if if someone like the Pac-12 starts stealing your thunder. You sent me an interesting text uh, this morning while I was was waiting to get my hair cut. (laughs) And so uh, Pete's going to the dentist later. I got my hair cut. We share our personal lives with our (laughs) listeners. That's how podcasts work. Bill, do you have any uh, maintenance issues that you have to take care of today or not? Uh, not today. I did. I waited a little long to, tr- to trim the beard last week and it didn't look very good on camera, but I took care of it. It's fine. Bill, have you used your gift certificate yet? That's really what uh, our listeners want to know. We're good. Now we need to, or, you know, we've kicked our illnesses and whatnot. We're good. So yeah, it's time. It's time. All right. So so Pete, tell us about the hypersensitivity um, of conferences that that you've noticed. 
Yeah. So the uh, Chuck Dunlap, who uh, helps run football for the uh, SEC, put on Instagram, the SEC leads the nation with seven ranked teams and is the only A5 conference to have faced six non-conference opponents ranked in the AP top 25 at the time of game. And then there's the old from the 80s, the more you know, with a star shot through it. And (laughs) to me, all I knew was that in Birmingham right now, they are not thrilled that they are not perceived as the top, top to bottom conference in the country. <laughs> that would be the Pac-12. I think all of us would agree so far this year. That is what the results have uh, told us, both empirical with results and with our uh, with our own eyes. And uh, that is uh, that has not been taken well uh, in uh, in Birmingham. Bill, I'm curious your statistical uh, fact check of the only a five to have faced six non-conference top 25. I, I got, I got lost halfway in there. So I don't really know what that said other than, um, well, I, I will say this, um, SP plus, I'm just looking at plain old average rankings, uh, ratings, excuse me, SEC is still number one. And for one very specific reason, they have one bad team. Um, there's one 13 out of 14 are in the top 45. And now, oh yeah, we're used to a lot more than two in the top 11, I guess that's where they're at right now. So for, if we gauge conference strength in any way, based on like the top two, three, four teams, or how many top 15 or 20 teams they have, whatever that is, they're not grading out incredibly well, but they do benefit at least from, you know, their 12th best team is better than anybody else's 12th best team. They have, that's what they should put in the release. That's where they should really, you know, if our number 11 team played somebody else's we, we would absolutely be favored in that game you know that's where they should go next i remember when the sec just bragged about winning all of its games <laughs> doesn't seem like that long ago does it florida state fans chant we want to leave the ACC. Yeah, that's right so <laughs> so there you go it just means more <laughs> but i would I, but i would i would write off the sec teams at your peril I do think there are more national championship contenders in the Pac-12, but right. along with empty elevator shaft and the other things that Pete will mock me with, and one day soon when I sit out of a, a podcast and he gets to do it solo, <laughs> it's not against the rules to improve. And yeah. there, there are a few in the SEC that have a little more ceiling than they've shown, but when you don't show the ceiling, you got to pay the price. And the price is, putting like seven qualifiers into your tweets about what you've accomplished. So that's the price right now for the SEC. Bill, always great to talk to you. Uh, Your Missouri Tigers, unbeaten, still rolling. Perhaps they're the ones that will improve and have everybody chanting SEC, SEC at the end. I was going to say, you know, if if the SEC East had its own uh, PR department, they could point out that almost half of their conference is still or their division is still undefeated. It's it's that lowly West that's dragging everything down. right now. <laughs> How about that? You got to you got to break it up. It'll never change. It always changes. <laughs> it always changes. And uh, you've got Kentucky undefeated. They've got Florida this weekend. Mark Stoops is going to join us live from the field on college game day ton coming up thanks for listening to this edition of the podcast picks coming on friday hopefully we'll give some winners to you then remember subscribe to the podcast it's the easiest way to make sure you never miss one or download it wherever you prefer to get your podcast we'll talk later